With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This episode of This is Success is brought to you by AT&T Business, providing edge-to-edge intelligence for businesses. In 1984, Steve Schwartzman was an executive at Lehman Brothers. Lehman's CEO was ruining the company's reputation, so Schwartzman took charge. At only 37 years old, he volunteered to sell the firm out from under its CEO, and he found a buyer. But a year later, Schwartzman and his business partner Pete Peterson were out on their own. There were a couple of Wall Street power players now out of the circle of power. And no one was interested in their new business, Blackstone. Today. Schwartzman is one of the most influential financial leaders in the world, and his firm manages over $500 billion. Blackstone started in private equity, buying firms mostly with debt, taking them private if they weren't already, restructuring them, and selling them for a huge profit. And as Blackstone grew, it also took on other kinds of investments, especially in real estate. I spoke with Schwartzman ahead of the launch of his new book, What It Takes. And he told me he's known since he was a kid that success takes seizing opportunities and going after what you want. My grandfather and my father owned a store together. Uh, it was called Schwarzman's Curtain and Linens. And, and so I had to start going there somewhere between 8 and 10 years old on Saturdays and working. And, you know, I'd, I'd had no capability. I was a teenager. Uh, and you know, I'd watch the ladies come in who were doing the shopping. And the store was always filled. So, so I sort of saw that, and I said to my dad, geez, you know, the store's always busy, and it's got good merchandise. Why, why don't we expand it all over the country? And he sort of looked at me, and he said, uh, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, why not? I, I said, if it works here, it should work other places. And there isn't anything particularly like this. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want to do that. I said, Dad, it's, it's just right there. Uh, why don't you want to do it? And he said, because I'm happy. I'm happy running the one store. I'm happy, you know, with our house in the suburbs and our two cars. I, I'm happy that I can send you to college and your brothers mm. and maybe even graduate school if necessary or desirable. And that's all I aspire to. Yeah. And I said, but, but dad. <laughs> and, and I was always struck by stories you've told about you early in your career, even before you got into finance, of how confident you were. Even when you're meeting with heads of companies or talking to the dean of a school, how did you balance your confidence 
with like the line between confidence and arrogance? I, I, I never believed I was arrogant, and I didn't even believe I was confident. Hmm. Uh, all, all I did was like look at things and understand what was going on and try to explain them to someone else. So, so I, I didn't view this as really about me at all. Uh, it, it was about the situation. And, and so at Harvard Business School, which I thought wasn't so good in 1970 when I went. It it's was come in, a long way. It, well, it was number one yeah. uh, then. Uh, it was during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and business had a very negative uh, reputation among students. And so the smart students were going to Harvard Law School, Harvard Medical School, Yale Law School. They weren't going to Harvard Business School. So I went to see the dean. It took probably four to six months to actually get an appointment, which I thought itself was pretty... It's a long time to get an appointment, yeah. And, And so I basically showed up and I said, look, you've got, you know, teachers who can't teach and a curriculum that's outmoded and students who can't learn. You know, you've got a ineffective administration uh, in terms of dealing with issues. And I gave him examples of why I thought each of those and a set of solutions. And he just looked at me and he said, <laughs> he said, Mr. Schwarzman, have have you always been a misfit? <laughs> and I like, said, who do you think you are? Type I, of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I said, no, no, I, I'm not, I haven't been a misfit. I said I was president of my junior high school and my high school, and <laughs> I was the person running graduation at, you know, at, at my college and, you know, on the podium. And, and, you know, I'm actually the head of, you know, sort of the top student organization here. So actually, I'm not a misfit. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just trying to be helpful. Yeah. He said, well, I don't think I need any advice. And I, I said, I said, really? He said, yes, that, that'll be all. And I was dismissed. So has your approach always been that if you feel like you have a solution to something, you're just going to go for it regardless of what maybe the norms might be in the sense that, oh, why, would, why should a dean listen to a student? He's the one in charge. No, no. I, I believe that everyone in a position of authority mm-hmm. is, 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 should be there and is almost always there to make their institution better, to serve somebody better. And the biggest problem people in that position have is they don't have accurate and constant information mm-hmm. because sometimes people don't want to get them angry. I, I just give them information and, and usually always some kind of solution. And I think I'm doing a service. I, I don't think I'm yeah. you know, doing anything <laughs> odd. In a couple of jobs after Harvard Business School, you ended up at Lehman Brothers. I did. In the 70s. And what's interesting to me is that you wrote about the culture at Lehman at Harvard before you even got there. And you were well aware. Well, the way that you saw it, it was almost like a a viper's nest. Everyone's cutthroat at each other's throats. So knowing that, why would you want to go into that environment? Well, I, I thought it would be exciting, actually. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, every, everybody else was quite corporate. At Lehman, they, they didn't have MBAs. Mm-hmm. People just sort of drifted in. One guy was a CIA agent. The, uh, the other one, you know, was, was from the energy business. You had people from all walks of life. It was a real melange of very smart, 
very talented people. Mm-hmm. The building itself looked like, you know, a palazzo or a, a, a Italian <laughs> a castle of some type. The floors were small, mm-hmm. and, and there was a sense of intimacy. Uh, and, and I thought it was very dynamic, and I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> it, it was quite dynamic. Yeah. Did it wear on you, or did you enjoy that kind of competitive nature? I enjoyed that, mm-hmm. uh, except I realized that, that, you know, I guess my first day at work, you know, I was 24, mm-hmm. and, you know, got to the elevator, and the elevator opened, and somebody walked out, and who, who was obviously senior to me, it was my first day, and uh, said, um, oh, you're one of the new people. I said, yes. They said, well you're really going to love working here. Uh, I said, I said, well, I hope so. He said, you want to know why? I said, sure. He said, well, here, you know, nobody will ever stab you in the back. They'll just walk right up to you and stab you in the front. <laughs> and then he so walked off. that's your introduction to it, yeah. <laughs> this is my first day at work. I remember going home and my wife said, how, how, how was your first day? I said, I said, let me tell you about this. So yeah. it's not like you weren't forewarned. And it wasn't it's all like right that. there. Yeah, it right was out not in the open. that way every day, okay. every moment. But that kind of behavior uh, is, is destructive of an institution, of an organization. And so when we started uh, Blackstone, mm. I, I had good training. I just wanted to do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the, the end of your time at Lehman is just a really remarkable story in the sense that you had essentially been like the leader of a coup under the CEO selling it under him to American Express. Could you kind of explain what happened there and how you knew it was the right time to do this? Yeah, sure. It was It was really, uh, I guess I was somewhere around 35 and I was uh, heading the, the merger area at, at Lehman. And the uh, senior people at the firm took a position in uh, uh, London in a trading area where it went really wrong and, and we got caught in an inverted yield curve and every day you opened, you lost money and the value of what you had purchased was worth a good deal less, sufficiently so that it, that it was close to destroying the entire equity of the firm. And this was not disclosed to anybody, but but some people found out and started talking among themselves and there was a big uh, meeting of all the partners and and the head of the firm said that none of that existed and anybody who said anything would be fired and and so uh, there weren't a lot of options you needed more capital uh, it's hard for somebody to do due diligence to do that uh, and so one answer if you couldn't get a lot of capital quickly uh, w- w- would be to sell the business. And, and so, you know, I, I approached, um, you know, one of the senior people at the firm and I, I, I said, you know, this is the situation. And this individual who was running investment banking said, that's right, that's, that's, we're in. I said, I think one of the options is to sell the business. Would you like me uh, to do that? because I'd never go out and do something w- without authorization. And he said, yep. Uh, he said, you gotta execute this really quickly. I said, well, I've got a list of five places to go and uh, I think we can do it. Yeah. And, and so, so we did. Yeah, and 
looking at it now, like decades later, is there anything that you would have done differently with that? Yeah, I wouldn't have sold it. You wouldn't have? No. I, Why? I, I would have found well, Lumen was an amazing franchise. The whole business was doing great except for this one problem. Mm. So, so the right solution probably would have been finding somebody uh, who would put up uh, a lot of equity. And in fact, somebody called me during that process and, and said, you know, Steve, I have enormous confidence in you. I'll put up as much equity as you need, and I'll take half of the business, and you run it for me. And I said, I'm 35 years old. I don't know how to run. <laughs> One of the so you could have ended up the CEO at 35? Yeah, but, but the, I said, look, I, I'm not qualified at this point in my life, and I don't think I would be accepted mm-hmm. by the people who are 10, 15, 20 years older than me. And I said, that would be like a mess. Mm. And, and he said, but I, I only trust you. I don't know everybody else. I said, well, I'm very trustworthy. That's why I'm advising you not to do this with me because I'm not ready and I wouldn't be accepted. So when you did leave Lehman, you and uh, a former CEO of Lehman, uh, Pete Peterson, uh, you decided that you were going to create your own own firm, which that's uh, Blackstone. And when you were starting off, you didn't have any clients. You, you say you were waiting for the phone to ring. No one was, no one was calling. I mean, what were you thinking at this time? Did you regret all of the decisions that you had made that got you to that point? Well, it does cross your mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was even worse that they didn't call. We sent letters out to everybody we knew. We probably sent five, 600 letters out announcing that we were going into business to do M&A advisory work. And so I, I thought if you send out that many letters to people you knew, you, you worked for and, and who knew you, that, that people would call and say, how terrific. And, you know, I've got something for you to work on. I, it never crossed my mind that no one would call in response. So we just sort of sat there. And I said, <laughs> oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> so I, I talked to my partner and I said, what, what do we do? So he said, well, we, we call everybody. So then we finished that. And we had no business. And there's nothing worse as an entrepreneur than being thinly capitalized. We had $400,000. And every day you open, you have the rent, you have the phone, you have the Xerox machine. We had rented furniture. And it's like an hourglass. It just keeps going away. And I keep thinking, oh, my God, we, we could go broke. So I went back into his office, Pete's office, and I said, Pete, what do we do? And he said, well, let's wait two weeks and call them all again. <laughs> Maybe we'll get lucky. This goes down as yeah. great strategy, That's right? Great. <laughs> and, and we actually got someone to hire us. So that us. ended up working. Yeah, it yeah. ended up <laughs> working. But, but being an entrepreneur is really uh, fraught hmm. uh, with uh, setbacks, disappointments, and, and you, you, you have no idea when you start uh, how desperate survival actually is. Yeah. Because almost everybody comes from someplace else, so it's working. Not every time, but almost all. And, and so to go into an environment calling people you know and having nothing happen is really scary. And, and taking that kind of perspective, if someone's listening, maybe they want to build their business or they're starting something 
and they don't even have what you and Peterson were starting with, which is you're well-known, well-connected, had uh, financial stability personally. If they're in that situation, what would you recommend to them as kind of like a, a lifeline to them? What I'd say is you, first of all, uh, have to have enormous emotional stability because you're going to have a lot of setbacks. Secondly, you have to accept the fact that you're going to be in psychological pain in a way you haven't before, and it can extend for some time. Third, you should only do it if you've thought of something that is really extraordinary. Replicating what somebody else does because you can, quote, do it better is a tough way to be successful, particularly if there's more than just one other organization doing it. Finding something that's unique and really potentially big, that's worthy of your time, worthy of these sacrifices, and, and all the emotional energy you have to put into this, because you don't become successful as a part-time worker, as, a, as an entrepreneur. Your work-life balance, pretty much forget it. You just have to go all in. You've you got to be all in. You, you've got to be you know, just sort of a believer because you're right, not because you just want to believe something. It's got to like test it with reality. And you have to be able to convince other people of your vision. And you have to never give up. So if you try and sell something to somebody, it's part of your entrepreneurial mission, mm. uh, and they say no, most people say no, even though you think it's great. And they say no because most people don't like changing. In that partnership that you had with Peterson, it's been often regarded as one of the most successful in Wall Street history. What do you think made that work so well? Well, it's, it's fun. I, I work with Pete uh, probably from when I was 26, mm -hmm. 27. And how old was he at that time? He's 21 years older than mm -hmm. I uh, was. And what was good is we, we were a terrific uh, match. He had been Secretary of Commerce and worked in the Nixon administration and was was extremely well connected uh, with everyone in the New corporate everyone. world. Yeah. Very, uh, you know, sort of strong process-oriented uh, way of thinking. And, you know, I was a young guy. So, so what was my role? Uh, Pete actually didn't enjoy doing deals. Mm. And he really never loved finance. He really loved foreign policy. Uh, and, and so, you know, he would connect with certain people. And then I would take it over and do whatever we thought was interesting. And, and so he enjoyed doing his piece. Mm. Uh, I loved doing my piece. Uh, and in that sense, you know, um, uh, we, we, we weren't competitive. We were a team. Uh, and, and together... Uh, better, I think, than either of us apart. So it's a matter of finding someone who can complement your skill set. Yeah, I think if you look at a lot of the great entrepreneurial companies, some are just have one founder, but most, you know, like Google, have two. Microsoft had two. Apple had two. Why is that? It's because nobody's equally good at every phase of developing a new organization or a new business. 
and so if if you have deficiencies, which which you do, right? Uh, even the everyone fast, does. Yeah, everyone does. It's the nature of people. You can't do everything mm-hmm. at, at at a level of a ten plus. That teaming up with somebody who does things well, that that really are more in your area of don't care to not good at, uh, then you're much more formidable. Plus, you have emotional support. It's really hard being alone. After the break, Blackstone reaches a new level of success. But then the financial crisis hits, and it changes everything. Stay with us. Competitive Edge, presented by AT&T Business, is a new series forecasting the ways edge-to-edge intelligence is transforming our most familiar industries. Here, transportation expert Nicholas Badminton tells us how IoT is informing the next generation of fleets. We all know about the Internet of Things, but what about the Internet of Trucks? There could be up to 4 million trucks in that network, all capable of making smart decisions in real time. With 5G, you're going to have trucks coming off of autonomous lanes to dock at hubs where humans could take the wheel for those complicated last miles through cities or residential areas. Carriers will need precise visibility into their fleet to manage those handoffs. To watch the full episode and hear about the future of medium businesses that touch us all, visit businessinsider.com slash competitive edge. We're back. After years of growth, Blackstone had become a giant in the private equity world. In 2007, Schwartzman took the company public, and he was in the news constantly. Fortune called him the new king of Wall Street. But then the financial crisis hit, and Schwartzman, the king of Wall Street, was painted as a villain. The media criticized him for his lavish, multi-million dollar 60th birthday party. Politicians in the U.S. and Europe began portraying private equity firms as leeches on society. And Blackstone became the face of corporate greed. Schwartzman was floored. That criticism was new. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I, I couldn't understand why it was happening. Because all we were doing was the same thing that we did the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so why, why was there sort of a different interpretation of that? And I really struggled with it mm. uh, for about six months. And then I figured it out. This was something I had no experience with, and I don't think anybody of my generation did, Mm. uh, because this was called populism. And then I realized it it wasn't about me as a person. Uh, I became some kind of symbol of something. Mm -hmm. I said, how weird is this? I'm a person. And then you you realize that there were forces uh, in society that had changed, and then that that really accelerated after the financial crisis, mm-hmm. where indeed, you know, people really were hurt with large-scale unemployment and loss of net worth for everybody, and, you know, no optimism and lack of credit and, and housing collapses and down 40%. That's where most Americans had their wealth uh, just obliterated. And, and so, you know, the attitudes towards the business community, not to me personally at that mm-hmm. time, because they, they, they switched targets. So, so I got dropped off of the target <laughs> list and they moved on to someone else the way it always works. Is there a lesson that you have taken as a leader from the financial crisis that oh, is still relevant to you today? Oh, there's huge lessons <laughs> everywhere. You know, first, if you have a financial institution that's in trouble, don't wait to fix it. Mm. You you got to do it quickly. 
it's it's almost like retailing where they say your first markdown's your cheapest. Yeah. You, you got to fix it. And time is your enemy. It is not your friend when you have a financial institution yeah. uh, in trouble. Other lessons, you know, always be conservative and think that the world actually can end. <laughs> because every once in a while, it does. And, you know, there are crises that happen periodically over the decades. And if you're mispositioned, if you've taken on too much risk, if you don't have adequate capital, if you don't make every decision as if the bad thing can happen the next day, if you don't think like that mm. and you leave yourself exposed, there are many people who collapsed. Uh, Blackstone grew six times Wow. in size after the financial crisis where almost every financial institution was shrinking. So, so you know, it's sort of almost like defensive driving. You know, don't, don't, don't take that risk. Make sure you're looking in the mirror before you switch lanes. Yeah. So, so we were set up with that kind of mentality. So, so nobody sailed through the financial crisis, but relative to, to almost everyone, we did. And we were saying how one of the legacies of the financial crisis was a rise in populism across the country. I think another thing that I've been seeing is that people are starting to once again reconsider the role of a corporation in society. And in August, the Business Roundtable released a statement that said, essentially, we want to abandon shareholder primacy and think of things more a, a stakeholder approach. You were one of a handful who, of CEOs who didn't sign it. Why not? Well, we, we looked at that and we, 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 the way we read it may have been incorrect is that everything was more or less equal, mm. whether it was paying your employees, whether it was serving your community, whether it was dealing with suppliers, whether it was dealing with the environment. And what was listed in last place was, was making a profit. And, and we thought that these are all good objectives. We do all of these things. No one has to prod <laughs> us. But, but if having a financial incentive, which is why people give us money mm -hmm. to manage, was one of five and was listed last, this, this wasn't what we signed up for. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we didn't do it, not because we don't agree with the fundamentals underlying that. I mean, we hired 75,000 uh, veterans. You know, we do all kinds of things for the community. We have over 500,000 students we do entrepreneurial stuff with across the country. In every one of those verticals, mm -hmm. we, we are extremely active and positive. But our general counsel said, if we set ourselves up mm -hmm. with a confusing mandate, where every one of these five things has equality. How do you manage a business? How do you know where to go? Uh, and we're doing all these things anyhow. So I felt badly that we were sort of, you know, leftovers in, in that, but I don't feel badly at all in terms of compliance uh, with, with the spirit of that. Sure. And what you'd find, which is quite interesting, the reason why all those people signed that wasn't to have an aspirational goal 
they were all doing it anyhow. So do you think that the role of a corporation has changed in recent well, I think, history? I, I think it's not recent. You know, if, if, if you don't pay your employees well mm-hmm. and you don't have continual education for them, you know, they're not going to want to stay with you. And they're not going to be better and better. They're not going to have job satisfaction. So in each one of these things, over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a, there's been a real change uh, in terms of focus. And every CEO runs a sort of a big, responsible company, has these constituencies, and has developed plans. Th- th- these are issues that have been out there quite a while and have been responded to. This book has given you a chance to kind of think about the whole course of your career and I guess just legacy and impact. And a a fundamental um, aspect of that is the Schwartzman Scholars, which is kind of like Rhodes Scholars in uh, Tsinghua University in China. So you have a great relationship with political and business leaders in China. You also have a great relationship with President Trump. The U.S. and China now have a trade war and there's some antagonism there. How do you deal with that tension? Well, I, I try and be right in the middle of it. You do? I do. Yeah. Uh, because just I, I sort of view it as like an accident that I know all these people. <laughs> and I, I don't know them uh, because there's a trade war. Uh, sure. I know them because I know them and have dealt with with them all independently in some cases for decades. And, and so when I see something that um, is is going wrong, it, it fits the pattern you asked me about earlier. Uh, I, I like to get involved mm-hmm. and, and try and fix things to the extent that I can or make it clear to different parties what's really needed to resolve things and and what at least I think uh, is fair. And and so I I try and help out both countries if I can. You know, I always, you know, sort of let the U.S. people know what I'm going to say or do before I do it because I'm a U.S. person. Uh, And, you know, I I believe in what we're doing. By the same token, I'm, I'm trusted by the Chinese because... I understand how they think, and you you never make a deal by not understanding how the other side thinks, because you if you don't, you can't convince them to do something that you think's in their interest too. And on that note too, like even in the acknowledgments section of your book, a lot of books I see it it's a single page long. This it's fourteen pages long, and it's filled with heads of state. It's filled with politicians from all different political perspectives. Even in your relations with uh, China and the U.S., do you see yourself at this point in your career as almost a sort of statesman? Geez, I don't know. I just see myself as me. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> sure. put, a, put a label on it. I, I, I'm lucky enough just by the nature of you know, what, I, what I do and you know, Blackstone and all the things we touch and travel and managing money for like people all over the world I, I i i meet a lot of people who are in charge of things and you know i'm always trying to like help them in some way or you know or they'll ask questions what's so and so like what do you think i ought to do in this situation and 
it's it's as if they asked you. You, you would tell them something <laughs> that you know you had a firsthand knowledge about, and 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 so if any of that strays into areas where I have uh, expertise and I know the person, and they ask, they're asking really, you know, for just some content in an objective way, uh, and I, I'm glad to do that. That's helpful because uh, all I'm trying to do is be you know, helpful to them and helpful to the situation. Uh, so statesmen, go figure. You know, it's, it's just the same thing I've always done. So at this point in your life, how do you define success? Well, I, I think defining success is being self-actualized. You know, it's, it's no different than shooting a basketball from 30 feet and having it go in and hearing that sound and watching that arc, and it goes, whew, that's success. It's, it's the feeling of doing something uh, that, that you love and having a sense of mastery of a situation and, and helping other people by doing that and creating and, you know, I, I, you said something about, you know, n- now that, you know, you're sort of in effect in, towards the end of your career or something. I, I don't think that's the case. You know, I may be delusional, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think that way. Uh, I think I'm still 38 and we've got tons of stuff ahead of us at Blackstone, uh, as well as helping out on political things. And so my life's never been fuller. And it's so much fun. It's turned out differently than I thought. I I thought you got older and you were old (laughs) and you slowed down and and you were out of touch and you you lost your feel. Uh, It's not the way it works. Well, thank you, Steve. Well, thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. This episode was produced by Jennifer Siegel and Sarah Wyman. I'm Rich Filoni. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know which guests you've enjoyed and who you want to hear from next. We'll be back soon. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio. This episode has been brought to you by AT&T Business.